Hello, good day, and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa. Thank you for joining us for the first episode of historical content for our podcast, Stone Age Swedes After the Ice. This is a really exciting time, isn't it? It really is, and I'm really looking forward to getting into the very first episode. But before we get into that, I actually remember that we didn't introduce ourselves in the last episode. So how about we just say hello to the listeners? Sure, that sounds like a good idea. So who are you, Chris? So my name is Chris. I'm from the south coast of the UK. I'm from Brighton, and I did an undergraduate in ancient history. So I really love the Romans, but in general, all history and a master's in international politics. And uh, then I met this person called Orsa. And who are you, Orsa? Yes, my name is Orsa, and I'm also from the south coast, but the south coast of Sweden, namely the county of Skåne, a fact that I'm sure will come up time and time again in the podcast, because I have a way of uh, weaving my uh, Skåne heritage into conversations, and it'll also be noticeable when I speak in Swedish, because I have quite a thick accent from there. And what's your favourite period of history? So my favorite period of history is probably uh, quite far removed from where we are right now in the podcast. It would be sort of early 20th century history and especially women's suffrage movements uh, I find really interesting. Well, we'd better get going now then, so we catch up with the suffragettes as fast as we can uh, in many hundreds of episodes time, no doubt. <laughs> Sounds good. But now let's get going for this episode in the first proper episode of historical content, as we said. And as we promised, we're going to start every episode with a Swedish phrase of the week. And as we're getting going, let's start with one of my favourites, and that is Tur i Uturen. Well, Tur i Uturen literally means luck in bad luck. So that would be something like you dropped a piece of toast, but it landed butter side up. Okay, yeah, or slightly more dramatic, you get hit by an ambulance, but it was actually outside the hospital. So that's kind of good luck, but bad luck? Yeah, it's fortunate circumstances in an otherwise unfortunate situation. Actually, there's an amazing story to share that has nothing to do with me, but for some reason has always stuck in my mind. I think it was a woman who was flying from the UK to America or the other way round on, on a plane, as you do, and she had a heart attack on the plane, and they did the whole bling-blong, are there any doctors on board? And luckily for her, there were something like 15 heart specialists all going to America for a cardiology conference in Atlanta or Florida or wherever, and they were on the plane too. So she had perfect medical help on the plane, which was, uh, she had bad luck having the heart attack, but good luck from having them on board. Yeah, that would be the definition of a circumstance where it was tur i oturen. So that was our first Swedish phrase. Let's dive into the history. So yes, it's now time to open the instruction leaflet for our flat pack history of Sweden and see what the very first page has to offer. Um, unfortunately, there's no cool little blob figures explaining how to use the pieces you get in flat pack furniture guides uh, around the world. We can just imagine blob figures. Yeah, let's just imagine this blob figure who's taking us on this tour of Swedish history. He's always going to be there in the background in the future. But as we did mention in the introductory episode, the first few parts of the history is definitely going to focus on a period that has many names which all mean the same thing. So that's 
prehistory, before there was Sweden, pre-Sweden, that sort of thing. Exactly. And we are going to cover huge periods of history, and the numbers are quite staggering, really. Uh, the first people lived in the area of modern-day Sweden perhaps as early as 400,000 years ago, but that was before a succession of glacial periods. I can't even begin to imagine what the world was like 400,000 years ago. Absolutely nothing would be the same as it is today. I mean, in that time, mammoths were around, wandering about, eating food, chilling out. Exactly. There have actually been a few mammoths found in Sweden, one in central Stockholm in the middle of the 1800s, and there was actually one as recent as 2011 in the city of Umeå. And that's really far up in northern Sweden, and uh, I guess they were dead mammoths when they found them, right? <laughs> yeah, most, most definitely dead. There wasn't just a mammoth walking around Umeå, which Chris say is really far north. It's sort of a bit up. There's still a lot of the country left when you get to Umeå, but it's in the north. So yeah, definitely no live mammoths, even in northern Sweden. But yes, Sweden was effectively unrecognisable then. As the podcast is more about people and history than geography, mammoths and geology, I think we should probably skip forward to the time that humans begin writing their part in the history of Sweden. And now, I really do like this quote from The History of Sweden, a great introductory book by Byron Nordstrom. And he says, People have lived in what is now called Sweden for a very long time. Although forced to leave by successive glaciations, inhabitants have lived there perhaps as long as 400,000 years. We know the most about only the last 13,000 years or so, since the melting of the most recent glaciers. The record of all prehistory lies in archaeological materials. And that's the key point, really, isn't it? Oh, end quote, by the way. Prehistory really means before recorded history in a literary sense. And so we're going to go on a few episodes before we even find the first literary written source referencing Sweden, or the people thought to be residing in Sweden then. And now, ten points to the listeners, uh, if they can guess who the first person to write about Sweden was. And uh, ten points to author too. Can you remember? Mm, was it a famous person? Uh, kind of. Is it Stephen Fry? No, no, it's the first person we have a record to write about, so the earliest person to write about Sweden, not the person to write about the earliest Swedes. Is it Caesar? No, it's not Caesar. Is it some other Roman guy? Yes, it was Tacitus, a, a great Roman guy. Ah. Oh. Yeah, so this was in about 100 AD, I think, and um, Tacitus was a Roman historian, and for more on Romans, there's uh, the History of Rome podcast by Mike Duncan, which is sort of the, the main history podcast out there for uh, independent history podcasters, and there's other amazing podcasters, but we're going to leave the Roman history to them. Yeah, because the Romans are really far ahead into history now. We need to rewind a bit and come back to what we're meant to be talking about, which is the first Swedes and the first settlements here. There is a lot of history to cover, so shall we start somewhere around 13,000 years ago? So that's 11,000 BCE? Perfect. Of course, with anything this far back, the interpretation of what we know is quite difficult. Is a fancy tool just fancy because it was an icon or an offering, an example of social elites or stratification in society? Or was it just because the person making that particular tool on that particular day felt like making it a bit better than his other ones, just because it was more fun, perhaps? 
So if you get 10 archaeologists in the room, you'll probably get at least five different interpretations. There is a consistent view on a lot of these things, though, which is obviously updated over time and as we go. So we're going to be trying to give you the most accepted opinion on these things. Indeed, but we don't mind a bit of debate either. Debate drives research and drives our understanding of things. There will be plenty of debate on historical matters throughout the podcast, and that's not a bad thing. On the contrary, that's a good thing. But yes, the history. Sweden's prehistory does follow a relatively standard pattern of chronology. There's no jumping from mammoths to the Iron Age, as much fun as that would be. So we are going to travel through, and now for some difficult words for me to say as a Swede, we are going to travel through the Paleolithic Age, the Mesolithic Age, to the Neolithic Age. Some people might call these the Old, Middle, and New Stone Age, and I might be one of those people, because that's a lot easier to say. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Uh, but let's start in the Paleolithic time, around 13,000 years ago, so 11,000 BCE. The ice began to retreat at this time as the climate slowly, and we really do mean slowly, started to warm. We're talking about a 3 degree rise over 3,000 years, so slightly slower than what we're seeing in the news and the climate debate at the moment. So it rose from 11 degrees to an average of around 14 degrees in the summer of 8,000 BCE, specifically that year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And as the ice retreated, it didn't go very far at first. In fact, it only really started to reveal the very bottom of Sweden. So it went from the whole country being covered in ice to what is today called Skorna, the county that also mentioned at the very bottom of Sweden. So if you see Sweden on a map, it's got this sort of lumpy bit at the very bottom, and that's Skorna. Now, because the ice was retreating, in fact, you would have been able to walk from Sweden to Ireland without getting your feet wet as the land was revealed. But central Sweden, Stockholm to Gothenburg and that part of the country, however, was still very much submerged in a mix of ice and lake. I am very happy that Skåne has been revealed from the ice first, as that's where I'm from. So myself and my part of Sweden have now been revealed. Yet, my fellow people from down in Skåne didn't exactly have it great at this time. It was still cold and they had to hunt or gather all their food. We won't even be reaching the age of farming in this episode, that's how far back we're talking. Paleolithic Swedes were almost exclusively hunters, mainly for reindeer. Sadly, by this time there were no mammoths around, no mammoths to go hunting. Now that's a bit of a shame. It must have been pretty boring just hunting reindeer all the time. Everybody needs a bit of variety, and so having to chase down a mammoth would have been quite fun, I guess. Um, I guess their variety came in the different sizes of reindeer they were hunting, maybe? Yeah, but I must say that reindeer is tasty. I wouldn't want to eat it every day, but there is nothing wrong with the flavour of reindeer. I think the more interesting part of life don't really begin until later on when the Mesolithic people start appearing in the south and by this stage also further north in Sweden. 
The very first evidence of human habitation in Sweden has been found at several sites in the far south, in places like Stegebru, Ågerud and Simrishamn. We don't get any evidence from northern Sweden, because of all that pesky ice still being around, until about 7000 BCE, so once we reach the Mesolithic period. Yeah, so welcome to the Mesolithic period, or the Middle Stone Age for Orsa. This is between roughly 8,000 and 5,000 BCE, and weather-wise, we're rising from that 14 degrees of warmth in the start to a practically tropical average of around 20 degrees in July by the year 6,200 BCE. Yeah, that is warm. Present-day Swedes wouldn't feel out of place in Skåne 80,000 years ago then, if that was the average temperature. No, exactly. And as a result of all this warming and change in their surroundings, the people are finally starting to see a bit of variety in their diet. We're actually looking at people who are typically going to be eating all sorts of things and being quite healthy as they do it too. Yeah, as someone who loves food, I'd be quite happy with their diet. They're eating meat, fish, clams, grains, nuts and berries... And we know all that because of all the archaeological finds, rubbish tips, and whatever is left from these people's roaming settlements. Yeah, because the nature of the changing climate, the roaming animals, which were the main source of food at this time, and possibly other groups of fellow Swedes competing for the best food spots, settlements were never really permanent, they, they would be seasonal. But this doesn't mean the people weren't very well adapted for their time. Whilst the tools and gear that they're making obviously vary massively across the period, the early Swedes had access to axes, spears, arrows, animal traps, and different types of clothing depending on the weather, and even primitive temporary structures to keep out the elements. And of course, all of this technology and culture was really interchangeable with other countries even though they weren't countries at the time, and regions. Uh, we mentioned you could walk to Ireland from present-day Sweden if you wanted just a quick pint of Guinness or uh, some new uh, axe uh, styles, maybe. Obviously, you'd then have to wait a couple of thousand years to get your pint. But... Yeah, we'll, we'll factor that in if we go for a walk in Stone Age Sweden. Anyway, immigration, trade, and elaboratively decorative rock paintings and everything else was changeable and influenced by everyone else around. So there wasn't really anything that made the early Swedes stand out much from the early Danes or the early Germans. Yeah, so the people in the north and the south, now that ice has retreated a bit more north, they're hunting and systematically gathering all of the environment's increasingly diverse resources. You've got an increase in variety of animals, with elk, wild boar, bear and rabbits now all supplementing the ever-present reindeer to create a great mixture of meat available. Scavenging and gathering of berries, nuts, roots and seeds all help to decrease reliance on the vital stocks of fish and mussels that they've also been getting hold of. Yeah, so it's really quite a feast. And with the relative abundance of food, the struggle for survival that was the Paleolithic period has transformed into a time where there was a period of plenty, with even time for leisure, it seems. 
This is perhaps reflected in the types of carved amulets made of amber and amazing picture stones depicting the cute animals that they were then killing for food. Yeah, some of these are quite dramatic and there's a massive rabbit hole uh, that you can delve into about rock paintings and all of that kind of thing, but we don't really have time for it today. But do know there is a wealth of information out there on the internet or in more old school book form or articles that you can read about all these amazing rock carvings. But in summary, all of these changes in food, basic technologies that they're coming up with or getting from the other local groups of people around means that the population could start to expand. I see one estimate of the south of Sweden having around 2,500 people with the entire country of Sweden approaching between 10 or 25,000 people at this point. So that's certainly beginning to become a really identifiable amount of people roaming around still in their semi-temporary settlements. There's evidence of camps and settlements that appear to be adopted for a summer and then abandoned at winter or vice versa. It's really the adoption of farming that brings the real permanence of settlement later and the eventual development of something resembling villages. But yeah, much more on that in another episode. So 25,000 people in the entire country, that's the size of a small town in Europe these days. They keep going, the early Swedes. I like them. They make their tools, they eat their food, they're getting stronger, it seems. But now I think it's time to take a moment and introduce our first podcast case study. And so what is this case study? I give you Bikaskivogskvinnan. And that just sounds like a whole jumble of words and sounds if you don't speak Swedish. So what does that actually mean? So Kvinnan is Swedish for the woman. And Birkaskog is a small village in southern Sweden. So translated from English, it means the woman from Birkaskog. Sometimes she's referred to as Berum's Kvinnan. Again, Berum is a small village in the south of Sweden. So it depends slightly on how you define the area where she was found. Now, this isn't any old Swedish lady. She happens to be one of the oldest and best preserved remains of a human being found in Sweden. So she's sort of the first Swede, if you wish. Yeah, but while she's not actually, of course, the first person to live in what is today Sweden, she's the one of the oldest who we found remains of. Correct. She is one of the oldest examples of a Swedish person living, dying and being buried in Sweden for archaeologists to find. However, she herself, when she was alive, most definitely wouldn't have had the faintest notion of being Swedish. The notion of statehood and Sweden as a political entity and even the concept of nationality as part of a person's identity, that lies many, many years into the future. But what do we know about this lady, though? Birkeskjogskvinnan lived in around 6,700 BCE and was part of a community of small hunter-gatherer groups that lived in the south and southwest of Sweden. Around 8,200 BCE, it had gotten warmer in what is today Sweden and the last of the ice retreated, as we mentioned. In fact, around the time when Birkeskjogskvinnan lived, Sweden had a nice much more Mediterranean-style climate than we have today. Hunter-gatherer communities, or rather hunter-gatherer fishing communities, to be exact, 
They hunted deer, orcs, and wild boar with a few but very well-made tools. So Bekaskogskvinnan hung out with friends and family members and met up with other groups for festivities and celebrations. So we've basically arrived in the period where it's not just a battle for survival. Bekaskogskvinnan is doing other stuff. Yeah, it's quite a nice life. I actually wouldn't have minded trading places with them. Sweden was, as we mentioned, with just a few thousand inhabitants, very sparsely populated, and so there were really no shortages for them when it came to enjoying what nature had to offer. As I said, they were nomadic communities and lived in tents or huts. But there are two things that I find particularly interesting when it comes to Bekaskogskvinnan. The first thing is her gender, and the second is how she died. Firstly, the remains of Bekaskogskvinnan were found by a farmhand who was digging a field in June 1939. When archaeologists analysed the grave and the remains, they quickly determined that it was a man, based on the fact that the skull was rather large and that the grave contained arrows, remains of fishing nets and other hunting-associated tools. So those two things, a big head and some hunting tools, that meant that bish bash bosh, you're a man. Yeah, obviously. At least in the eyes of 1930s Swedish male archaeologists. These guys really couldn't think outside the box, or at least not outside the gender norms of their own time. Because when the skeleton was analysed by specialists in the 1970s, it turned out that it had belonged to a body that had given birth to several children, which tends to be a female body. In fact, this 4.9 foot tall little lady had given birth to several children, but that hadn't stopped her from also being associated with hunting and fishing. And so the man from Bekaskog, when the remains were found in the 1930s, became the woman from Bekaskog after closer analysis in the 1970s. Yeah, that's really interesting, and it definitely says something about how history and archaeology is influenced by the time in which it's analysed or written about. And there's always some new technology coming around to date bones and all that stuff that we now have that's available that they didn't have in the 1930s when they found this bunch of bones. Yes, and also the mindset of the people that are studying I think we often tend to see history through the prism of our own time and judge it according to our norms, values and behaviours. And that can sometimes, as in the case with Bekaskogskvinnan, lead to rather laughable mistakes, really. True. Now we've covered who she was in a very fundamental sense and what she was getting up to. Uh, you mentioned something about her death. Yes. So when the remains were discovered, it was found that she had an arrow in her chest close to her heart and that made the scientists go aha foul play and assume she had been murdered or ritually killed however later analysis has shown that she most likely died because of an accident possibly from getting septicemia in a wound and that the arrow was placed in her chest when she was buried now as you said chris the first example of her mistaken gender that's an example of how mistakes are made when analysing history because we are caught in the social framework of our own time. Now, this with how she died is more a case of not having access to sophisticated test methods or research methods. 
uh, in the same way we have today. But both those things have a massive impact on how we view events in history. Birkaskogskvinnan is interesting because she tells us a lot about life in Sweden during the Stone Age, but also because she tells us about the science of history itself, how it changes and how we re-evaluate previous discoveries. So that makes her a good case study for many reasons. If you want to, if you're in Sweden, you can go and visit Birkaskogskvinnan in her own exhibition in the Swedish History Museum, and I haven't seen her yet. No, me neither. Not in person. I've seen pictures. Uh, but yeah, an, an interesting case. And with that, I think it's time to round off the first proper episode of A Flat Pack History of Sweden. Yeah, I think we've made a great start. We've opened the box and got all the bits out and are slowly reading the instructions, so to speak, and we'll keep building as we go. In this episode, we've established where we're starting from. And we are going back a long way back in history to a place that's almost unrecognizable geographically to the Swedes we see today. And we've met the first Swedes, Orsa's first country men and women. Yeah, that's true. I was going to say that you don't have a lot in common with them, but I think we've seen how their lives weren't actually that remote from life in Sweden today in terms of what they got up to. Yeah, it was definitely different in their tools and some of what they might be eating. There was no burgers, for example, but there was still meat and berries and fish and all that kind of thing. And the general lifestyle was pretty similar, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess slightly less iPad and more axe-based, but yeah, hunting is still a massive pastime activity for Swedes, uh, less for survival, but we did seem to like the same food, that's for sure. Uh, I wouldn't mind it. This is also the fourth time I'm talking about the food, but I do really like the idea of having their diet and, and living outdoors. In the next episode, we'll see how these early Swedes go from hunting and gathering to the monumental change of taking up farming. Probably one of the most revolutionary changes in lifestyle that we've ever had in human history. So I'm really excited to talk about that. I can't wait. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at Flatpack Sweden or Flatpack Sweden on Facebook. And you can also uh, have a look at our website, aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com. Or email us on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. So lots of uh, Flatpack histories for you to go searching and Googling and all that kind of thing. Yes, uh, but thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye. Hey, door.